Well, good morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you don't, it'll be on the screen behind me here. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 21. And this is what it says. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is the word of the Lord. Now you can sit down. So I've got a friend who does some work for a very wealthy lawyer, and this lawyer buys lots of fancy gadgets, anything that he sees that kind of catches his eye, he'll buy it. But if he doesn't use it or doesn't really like it, he just ends up getting rid of it, which means he'll give a lot of it away. And um, the lawyer offered a really nice turntable to my friend, like a record player. And he in turn gave it to me because he knows that I like listening to records and playing music and things like that. And if you've been in my office over the past few months, you have seen this thing because it's a conversation piece that looks like it's from the future or from outer space or something like that. It's, um, it's made of high quality materials like you know carbon fiber and brass and things like that. And it looks sleek and minimal while still looking futuristic, but it also does something that literally no other turntable on the market does. It levitates. And it's made by a German company called Maglev, which I assume probably uh, stands for magnetic levitation. But I've got a picture from their website to show you how cool this thing looks. I don't know if you can tell, but the turntable is actually like a flying saucer. So there's like a little glowing light there and you can literally put your hand like all the way under the turntable and it keeps on spinning. Um, but in order to actually listen to records on this turntable, you have to have an amp and speakers and all that kind of stuff. It's not like one of the cheap, you know, suitcase record players where it has built-in speakers. You have to buy other stuff just to be able to use the thing. So that's not exactly been in my budget. So for months, this fancy-looking turntable has just sat in my office, but I can't actually use it for its intended purpose. But then... For my birthday, I got some Amazon gift cards, money, and things like that, and I ordered a stereo so that I can actually listen to this thing. And it arrived, and I got it all set up, and I actually had to watch a tutorial just to figure out how to make it work. And um, so I see the light come on, and it starts slowly spanning, and it takes about 20 seconds until it gets up to that, you know, 33 RPM that it's supposed to be to play your records. 
and I, I move the arm, and the second, like literally the second, the needle touched the record, it broke. <laughs> so I have never heard this thing. Um, although I had this cutting edge technology and brand new speakers and a nice amp, it did no good at all because this little, I almost thought of bringing it, but I could literally hold it and people on the front row wouldn't be able to see it. It's like a little, like, I don't know how long a centimeter is, but it's like, it's probably a centimeter or two. It's just a little piece of metal. And um, as far as the raw materials go, that little needle is probably the least valuable part of my turntable, but it doesn't matter how good my turntable looks. It doesn't matter that the platter floats and that there's a light underneath it. It doesn't do the thing it's intended for. It's supposed to produce sound, but it does nothing but spin. And I want to tell you that the glory of that turntable, that turntable, I'm pointing to the screen that I can see. You don't see that one. That turntable um, is nothing compared to the glory of the body of Christ, which we call the church. And yet, God's church does not work the way it's supposed to without you. And I mean that. I don't mean that it's contingent on you because God's word says that if we're silent, the rocks will cry out. But the intention is that every single part of you, Christ followers, are part of the body. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. For the past few weeks, Pastor Tyler's been walking us through Orangewood's mission statement and our values. And um, the first person who can say our mission statement, I'll give you my turntable. <laughs> Psych. I do want to, I am curious to know if anyone who's not on staff knows our mission statement, but I'm going to tell you. Also, it would be kind of like giving you a Lamborghini that needed a new transmission, because I just found out the, the needle is part of a thing called a cartridge, and that cartridge is $80, so i got to drop another $80 just to get my turntable working. Anyway, that is not the point. <clears throat> this is our mission statement. Inviting every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. Inviting every person into the life-changing story of Jesus. And so we've been walking through our different values, and today we're going to talk about our third value, which is better together. And coincidentally, uh, Lucy, my three-year-old, is wearing a Peppa Pig shirt that's got Peppa and Susie Sheep and... Zoe Zebra, I think, and it says better together on it. So um, anyway, all of our uh, values have sort of a summary statement, and this is the summary statement that you can see on the screen there. We are committed to our church body, intentionally learning from, encouraging, and supporting each other through all stages of life. So the point is we as Orangewood, we as human beings, we as the church of Jesus Christ are better together. And another way of saying this is we can't do this alone. We can't do this alone. And we just sort of logically understand this, that it's better not to be alone. If you've ever watched a scary movie, inevitably there's some part where it's probably like a bunch of hot 20-somethings that are supposed to be teenagers, and at one point somebody's like, let's split up. And you've never, ever thought, that 
seems like the best plan. That's, that's probably going to work. There's a killer on the loose, so let's isolate everyone. That's a good plan. We kind of intuitively know that it's better not to be alone. Um, but there's a big difference between simply not being alone and being meaningfully connected to others in community. And when I say community, I, I don't really mean your neighborhood because you can share a zip code and an HOA with people but it doesn't mean there's any community in a meaningful sense. When I talk about community, your community are the people who know what you're really like. And they're the people that you'll call when you have good news. They're the people you'll call when something awful happens. And they're the people that will have the guts to challenge you and tell you when you're acting contrary to the person whom God has called you to be. In short, you could say that they're your support system. And the reality I know is that some of you don't have one. But we intuitively know we need this, whether we think about why it's important or not. And the past couple of years has highlighted that for us. When we think about, especially last year uh, when COVID was new and it was the height of lockdown, we weren't able to eat together and go to parks together and do communal things together. And especially when it wasn't safe for us to meet here as a church together and worship together, we all had this sense, this is not the way things are supposed to be. In the past year, to some degree, we have all experienced that feeling. We're not supposed to be isolated like this. But aside from how we feel, There's been massive amounts of research and empirical data that all point to the fact that people thrive when they have meaningful relationships and they don't thrive alone. Even before COVID hit, the APA published findings that nearly half of 20,000 U.S. adults who were surveyed reported they sometimes or always feel alone. And it's important to understand there's a big difference between being socially isolated and being alone. Because you can be socially isolated, but know that you're still connected people. Many of us experienced that last year. You can be surrounded by people and feel utterly alone. In fact, in that same survey, 40% reported they sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they feel isolated. And if that's not enough data for you, here's the so what. Another study showed that lack of social connection heightens health risks as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having alcohol use disorder, and that social isolation and lack of meaningful connection is twice as harmful to physical and mental health as obesity. So the bottom line is that community and meaningful relationships are incredibly important. We logically understand this. We experientially understand this. And research affirms it. And yet, none of this is how I want to appeal to you that we are better together. I want to point to God's word to emphasize how crucial community is as followers of Jesus. Since God created us, he knows the purpose for which we were created, and he knows how we will thrive. And so I want to appeal to the creator's very own words. 
And if we look in Genesis 1, after each day of creation, it says that God saw that it was good. There was no sin, there was no brokenness, there was no death, there was no tears, there was no divorce, there was no addiction. And when we want a vision of how things were intended to be, we can look at what creation was like before there was sin in the world. It was good. But even before there was sin in the world, there was one thing that was not good. In Genesis 2, 18, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that the man should be alone. It was never God's intention that we should be in this world alone, even before there was sin and brokenness. So how much more do we need one another now that we live in a world that is broken? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You've heard this before. It's from the famous Sermon on the Mount, but I want you to try to look at it like you haven't heard it before. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here's why this is so profound. In our language, we don't have a good word for the second person plural. In other words, when I say um, you are the light of the world, you don't know if that means an individual or if that means plural, everybody. That's why we say you guys and yous and y'all and it seems like every region of America has a different plural version of you. But in Greek, the language that the gospel writer Matthew was uh, using, there's a distinct word for the second person plural pronoun. And in Matthew 5, when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, you is plural. In fact, in that passage, anytime it says you or your, it's plural. So what that means is he's not saying you and you and you. He's saying you collectively as the people of God are the light of the world. And he goes on to say, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Why? Because there isn't just one building with a light on. There are tons of buildings and homes and coffee shops and churches and all other kinds of things so that it is undeniable that there is a city on that hill. One little light is not going to give it away. It is the collective light of many. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't tell us to do good works so that we can be Christians or so that we can be saved. Jesus saves, not our good works. We do good works because when we do, our lights shine and others see God. And you'll see this echoed throughout Jesus' teachings. The fact of the matter is, left to my own devices, I don't do very many good works. I need people who are bold to encourage me to be bold and brave. And I need people who have very powerful prayer lives to inspire me to pray about things more than I complain about things. 
And I need people who have strengths and areas where I'm weak. And the fact is, they need me too. Because no one can be the light alone. Uh, there's a quote from the theologian Stanley Hauerwas. Um, I wrote, I read one of his books probably four years ago, and it has forever changed my perspective on, I would say, the Sermon on the Mount, but even on the church. And I want you to listen to this quote. The sermon is not primarily addressed to individuals because it is precisely as individuals that we are most apt to fail as Christians. Only through membership in a nonviolent community can violent individuals do better. The Sermon on the Mount does not encourage heroic individualism. It defeats it with its demands that we be perfect even as God is perfect, that we deal with others as God has dealt with us. Since community is what we are created for, it's the only way that we can really be who we're called to be. And so much of the New Testament speaks to us with the assumption that we have this understanding, but it also assumes that we will have difficulty being in community because frankly, being in community is hard. In Paul's instruction to the Colossian church in Colossians 3, he says to bear with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It sounds very much like Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer. But see, if we show up for church on Sunday, high-five a few people, drink our coffee, throw it in the bin, peace out, it's highly unlikely that we're ever going to really rub somebody the wrong way. It's highly unlikely that we're going to get our feathers ruffled very much by anything more than, I don't like that song, or I'm not sure about that thing that the pastor said. But it's probably something we will have forgotten about by the time we get home. But Paul assumes that we're going to be in one another's lives to the extent that we'll need to have patience with one another and forgive one another. Do you see that? That's because even though community is what we're created for and it's what our hearts long for, it's incredibly hard. And the one promise that I can make you is that you will get hurt in community and you will hurt other people. But you already know that. I didn't need to tell you that. You know what it feels like to be rejected, to feel hurt, to feel misunderstood. And the only way you ever feel those things is if you put yourself out there to be in relationship with others. And the reason you put yourself out there is because it's what you naturally long for. The reason you'll stop is because you've been hurt so much that you've decided it isn't worth the risk anymore. And Jesus says, yes, it is. Yes, it is. My daughter Lucy is only three, but she already displays all this longing for connection and friendship and the fear of it. Um, she's a little extrovert, so we'll be on a playground and she'll see some kids and be like, my friends. And I'm like, Lucy, you've never seen them before. And they're 10. And, and she's like, can I play with my friends? And, and I'm all, I always say, well, you have to ask them. Because the assumption is they may not want to play with her. They may reject her. And when I say you need to ask them, she'll reach out for my hand and she'll say, will you go with me? Because 
battling within the heart of this little three-year-old is I long for connection and I'm so scared of connection. And you know why? Because she's already been rejected. She already knows what it's like to want to play with somebody and them say, you're not old enough, you're not tall enough, you're a girl, whatever it is, we don't want you. And I got to tell you, like, as my community, I need to confess to you, I have never wanted to punch a kid <laughs> until I became a father and saw a jerk eight-year-old on the playground pushing my daughter. <sighs> <clears throat> If I don't take communion today, you know why. Um, but community and relationship, it's what we are created for. Even little Lucy feels that. And it's God designed and it's hard. And in fact, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, most of it is about how we interact with one another. Not just how do we uh, like shine a light so that those people out there see us as different. Most of it is about how do we interact with one another in here. And how we interact with one another in here has everything to do with, are we shining a light? Do we even look like a city? Or do we look like a bunch of buildings with the lights out? But our main passage this morning is about this tension of community. And so I want to take a quick walk through the passage, and you'll see Paul hits on the core issues that we come against in Christian community. So starting in verse 12, it says... For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So to boil that down, because of Christ, we as individuals are united into one body. And just as we have different organs and systems within our physical body, uh, there are different kinds of people in the body of Christ. And that's foundational because we are united whether we feel that way or not, whether we like it or not. And if we live, act, and think contrary to this, we're going against the grain of our very being. So reading on in verse 14, Paul says, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. His analogy sounds almost kind of silly, because, um, well, a, a foot or a hand can't act independent of the body. We, I mean... That just doesn't happen, right? And uh, in addition to that, I don't think my foot's all that concerned about if it's a mouth or not. But it's supposed to be a little bit silly. And yet every single one of us have looked at who we are, the things we're interested in, the things we're gifted at, or the things that we're not interested in and the things that we're not gifted at, and told ourselves, I don't belong here. In fact, I don't even want to be here. But God says, your difference doesn't make you less a part of the body. And your difference is not a weakness. Let's think for a moment what this means practically for us as a church at Orangewood. We often to think, uh, tend to think, I remember like growing up, like conversations I would hear like grownups having about 1 Corinthians 12. 
I don't know if you grew up hearing this. For some reason in my church, we talked about it all the time. I, I mean, and they were not big on spiritual gifts in the church that I grew up, but this is, this is what they talked about. And it was always like, well, how would we treat like a homeless person if they came in or like a prostitute? Like I remember hearing people say that. I'm like, can you spot a prostitute? I mean, I don't, I don't know how that works. But anyway, the truth is in our specific context, we don't have a lot of homeless people or um, you know, Islamist terrorists walking in the doors. But you know who's in our midst? Single adults. Single adults in their 20s, but also single adults in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. Widows, widowers, single moms, people who are divorced. And they're a minority, but they're here. And being single makes things lonely and awkward and intimidating when you're trying to find community. Because if you look around and it seems that everyone is married and has families, it's easy to feel like you don't belong. And as I've been overseeing our community groups, I've noticed an interesting phenomenon. And I wanna say up front, this is value neutral. It's just an observation. Most everyone says they value diverse and multi-generational groups but the majority of people choose a group that fits their age and stage, whether that's empty nesters or young married or um, you know, families with middle school kids. People, not all people, but people tend to find a group that's like them. And I'm not saying this is bad or wrong, but I'm simply remarking that most of us are naturally drawn to the people who are in the same stage of life as we are. But for a single person, it can feel like there isn't a place that they fit. So if that's you, I want you to know that you are welcome and wanted at Orangewood and in the body of Christ. And that we need your voice and we need your gifts. We need you. If that's not you, I want you to pray that God would give you eyes to see the single person in your midst and to make them feel welcome and wanted. I also wanna note that if you glance around our church, you're not gonna see a ton of millennials, and the ones that you do see are probably gonna be married. And millennials, just so we're on the same page here, are roughly 25 to 40. And this isn't just an Orangewood thing, this is an American church thing. Because the fact is millennials and Gen Z, the generation that's just younger than millennials, are leaving the church. It's the largest demographic shift in the history of the American church. Some of them are leaving the faith altogether, and some of them are simply just doing their own thing because they don't like organized religion. Maybe because they've seen corruption or hypocrisy. Many are leaving because they have been hurt by people in the church. But whatever the cause, the fact is there are two generations of young people who are graduating from high school and college and deciding not that we're better together, but I'm better off on my own. And if that's where you are this morning, I want you to hear God's word to you that if you say you do not belong, it does not make you less a part of the body of Christ. And you are welcome and wanted in this church. Please don't give up on us. 
because you're not meant to do this alone and we need you. To the older generations, I want to ask you to think to yourselves, not speak out loud, think to yourselves. What are the words and phrases that come to mind when you hear millennial or Gen Z? Probably some of you are thinking words like snowflake, entitled, lazy, addicted to tech. But if those are the things that first come to mind, then how welcome and wanted do you think young adults are going to feel at our church? We should make it easier and more compelling for people to be part of the body, not harder. But let's read the rest of the passage, starting in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Each one of them. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Paul tells us that there's unity in the body of Christ, but not uniformity. We're all one, but we're not all the same. And the practical application is that millennials can't say, I don't need the church. I don't need to hear what these boomers have to say. And older generations can't look at younger generations as a corrupting influence and say, I have no need of you. Why? Because of what verse 18 says, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If you're a follower of Christ, you are part of the body of Christ because God chose you, each one of you. A few weeks ago at a session meeting, um, you're supposed to get permission before you use somebody's name, but I'm saying something good about this dude, so I feel like it's probably okay. But we were at a session meeting, and Robert Drain uh, led us in a devotional. And he pointed out that among the disciples that Jesus chose to follow him and to live together for years were Matthew, a tax collector, and Simon, a zealot. And I've chewed on that a lot since Robert pointed it out. And here's why. In the first century, which is when Jesus and the disciples were doing things, um, the Jews were under Roman rule, and you could probably say they were under Roman oppression. And if you were a Jewish tax collector, in addition to the corruption and exploitation that was common in that trade, it meant you were taking money from your Jewish brothers and sisters and giving it to Rome. So basically, you were working for the man. And a zealot was someone who vehemently opposed Roman rule. And it wasn't just political, it was religious. They were actually called zealots because they were zealous for God, for God to rule his people, not Rome. But their zeal led them to even despise other Jews who sought peace with Rome, and they were violent. They caused riots. They wanted, they wanted to bring on the kingdom of God by force. So a zealot and a tax collector wouldn't choose to live together. They wouldn't choose to even associate. And in fact, I would be willing to bet that a tax collector would be fearful to run with a zealot because he might wake up with a knife at his throat. 
And yet the Lord Jesus Christ chose someone from the radical left and someone from the radical right and said to both of them, come, follow me. And in Jesus, they were called to the same family united in one body. They found something that was far greater than what divided them. And though they were naturally inclined to be enemies, they learned from their rabbi, love your enemy. And you know what happens when you love your enemy? You stop thinking of them as your enemy. I hope that through God's word and through his spirit that you get this bigger vision of what it means to be the body of Christ, that you get why better together is something that we value. And there's so many ways that we can engage and live in unity with the body, but I want to offer you two practical things to do. First, commit to a church. You may be checking out Orangewood this morning here in the room or online. You may be checking out church in general. And I want to encourage you, commit to a church body. Selfishly, I would love if Orangewood was your church home. But more than that, I want to encourage you to commit to a local church and be part of the body of Christ. When Brandy and I first moved to Florida, um, it was lonely and exhausting trying to find a church because you can really only judge things superficially. Do I like the neighborhood it's in? Did I like the music? Did I like the sermon? Did someone talk to me? Things like that. But at some point, we just realized we just needed to commit because it wasn't ultimately going to be the sermon or the music that was going to make this family for us. It was going to be the people and the relationships. And you can't sample that. You have to be all in. You have to risk to do that. So I want to ask you to commit to a church. And if you've been going to Orangewood for a while, pray and consider committing to being a vital part of this body because we need you and we're better together. Second, if you do call Orangewood home, ask God what it would mean practically to live and act in unity with the body here. Maybe you got used to watching online last year and it's easier just to stay in your pajamas and not get out of the house on Sundays. We want you here with us because we're better together. You need it and we need you. Maybe all the things that are so divisive in our culture are causing division in our body and you find yourself avoiding those who hold different views from you on any number of things. What would it mean for you to move toward the other parts of the body of Christ and let what unites you trump what divides you? Maybe you come most Sundays but you still don't feel like you know many people. And the first thing I would point you to would be joining a community group if you aren't part of one. They meet different nights in different parts of town, and it's a wonderful way to form meaningful relationships. You can find out more about those online or on the Church Center app. You can talk to me. You can volunteer to be part of one of our serve teams, or you can go to women's Bible study unless you're a dude, and then that would just be weird. But there are lots of different opportunities. Our website is geared around how can we help you connect to Jesus, yes, but how can we help you connect to one another also? 
If you're feeling stuck about how to connect, please reach out to me, and I mean that. Email, carrier pigeon, whatever works. I want to know. I want to help you connect. But I also want you to know that I'm not advocating for community for community's sake because of the health benefits. There probably are some, but that's not the point. I'm advocating for life in the church because it is the only community that is formed around Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Ultimately, this has everything to do with Jesus. We desperately need someone to reconcile us to God, someone to deal with our fear, someone to deal with our shame, someone to deal with the fact that I'm not enough, that I have failed, We need someone to redeem what's broken in our hearts and in the world around us. And what we need is Jesus. And you can't come to Jesus without also coming to his church. Our need for community is eternally tied to our need for Jesus. In Jesus' last recorded prayer for his disciples before he was arrested, he prayed for their unity. And he prayed for this because Think about this. If God's plan is a united church, then the enemy's plan is to divide us. So the main thing he prayed for his followers was unity. And after he prayed for the 11 disciples who were there with him, he prayed for his future disciples, which is you and me. And listen to what he said in John 17, 20 and 21. Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed that we will all be one, so that the world will believe that God sent Jesus. Jesus prayed to God the Father that we will all be one so that the world will believe that God sent Jesus. Let's pray. God, we truly can't do it alone. Your word says, apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't contend with this life and be who we so desperately long to be without you, Lord Jesus. And we can't be who you have called us to be. We can't invite every person into the life-changing story of Jesus without being connected to the body Lord, that means something different for each one of us this morning. Your word meets each of us in a different place. I pray as we come to your table this morning, that great, beautiful table that represents the family of God, I pray that you would move our hearts and show us what it means to move toward you and toward others for the sake of your glory, that the world may know that you, Jesus, are the son of the living God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.